Welcome back to the Big Picture podcast series. This week, we're joined by Ollie Freestone from Capita. I am absolutely delighted that you're joining us tonight to hear from Ollie, who's responsible for digital thought leadership, research and insights as head of the Capita Institute. I am not going to try and preempt any of Ollie's themes. I'm really looking forward to, to hearing what he has to say and him sharing his experiences and his thoughts with us. So without any further ado, over to you. Thank you, Catherine, for the kind introduction. Um, and also to Chloe and her colleagues for organising this, this lecture. Really thrilled to, to have the opportunity to talk to you. Um, I've spent a lot of time in my career um, in consulting with, with various clients who are looking to better understand the environment they're operating in uh, and the implications for how they make decisions. And one of the areas that has always interested me is how organizations react in, in terms of in times of crisis. Um, so whether that was when I was working through the financial crisis in 07, 08, Brexit, or of course, most recently the pandemic, um, these moments of severe disruption, I think are really fascinating because they raise sometimes existential questions for organizations, um, the organizations involved, and they also, uh, trigger a different kind of thinking and, and behaviour, um, different attitudes to risk, different attitudes to incentives, different appetite for experimentation and, and so on. Um, so this evening I wanted to talk a little bit about one particular aspect of that and that's innovation in a, in a crisis and share some observations and examples of what we're experiencing at the moment and some thoughts on why innovation in the crisis is a little bit different, I think, to kind of during stable times and what it actually might mean as we emerge from the pandemic period. So I'm gonna just flick onto my, my first slide here, which I thought it'd be useful to start uh, an, an anchor in a definition of crisis, um, particularly because aspects of this definition uh, cause individuals and organizations by implication to act a bit differently uh, to when everything is calm. And I'll just pull out a few words from there, which, which really resonate, certainly for me. Danger, difficulty, doubt, problems, decisions. So, so to me, a crisis situation is an extraordinary period where we have all these ingredients which result in, in great volatility, uh, uncertainty and complexity in which individuals and organisations uh, and industries and, and economies are trying to plot a course. And I think that provides also a golden opportunity for uh, innovation and thinking a little bit differently. Um, and I'm going to come on to innovation a little later on, but first let's just delve into um, the situation that we find ourselves in in, in a little bit more detail. Um, and uh, I think we all are all have been through and are still in this period of, of great uncertainty. Um, and given that definition of crisis, I would hope that many of us would agree that we've been experiencing many aspects of that definition. Uh, so danger, difficulty, doubt, problems, decisions over the past year. Um, as individuals, we've, we've grappled with um, like changing working locations or study locations and patterns. Um, some of us schooling, childcare, uh, looking after loved ones and, and further potential uncertainty still ahead. Although, as Catherine mentioned, at least we have some shape of a roadmap now. Societally, a humanitarian crisis on a scale few, few of us have experienced before, but also 
you know, things like social distancing day to day and the lockdown environment. Um, organizations, all domains, shapes and sizes have had to cope with massive challenges, changes in demand and supply, behavioral shifts from buyers and sellers that, that has caused them to have to adapt very, very quickly. And of course, last but not least, the economy experiencing its biggest shock for uh, 300 years since uh, the Great Frost of 1709, which was a disaster for the UK as, as an agricultural economy. And, and, and the current crisis, we're a very different economy now, but has equally been um, quite challenging, I would say. So I think we're still in the eye of the storm, despite this week's good news. And, and, and let me bring that to life a little bit. Um, I think there still remains significant uncertainty about the economic recovery. The chart you're looking at here on the left-hand side is UK GDP projections from the National Institute of Economic Outlook, um, published um, just about a week ago. Uh, and you can see from the span of forecast scenarios, there's still a very uncertain outlook for the future. UK economy, one of the hardest hits in 2020, GDP contraction of about 10%. And you can see an initial strong recovery from that first lockdown period petered out and we saw us narrowly avoid a double dip recession uh, and that recovery path as illustrated by that range of forecast scenarios likely to be dependent on the path in which we exit the pandemic there's upside opportunity in there so if, if the vaccination rollout continues to go very well maybe even accelerates um, if we see a bit of a boost from some pent-up consumer spending the savings ratio is, is quite high at the moment um, but also downside risks so uh, again, to do with kind of the rollout of, of the vaccination program and also policy based decisions. So I guess the message on this slide is good news coming out on Monday, but still significant uncertainty about the the economic recovery. Um, and then if I kind of click into that a little bit and just talk about impacts across industries, the, the chart here you're looking at is gross value added uh, across industries, which is a, is a feed of GDP. And what you're seeing on the right hand side, um, vertical axis is uh, to the left of that percentage change relative to February 2020. So the the uh, blue diamonds are April, the red bars are November, uh, and the data is only just now coming out for the, the previous three months. But uh, things like temporary closures, a shift to online shopping, reduced travel meant in that first wave of, of COVID, an enormous impact on business and, and some industries fared worse than others. So if you look right at the bottom there, accommodation and food, uh, so pubs, restaurants, hotels, recording almost no output in April and May, absolutely slammed. And then if you look at the top, public admin, where staff could largely work from home, saw little change on a GVA basis compared with February. And, and of course, I expect given the lockdown scenario, we're gonna see certainly a combination of food, kind of leisure, tourism, definitely towards that, that bottom end of the, um, the industry chart. Um, uh, and that's not the only other uncertainty. So uncertainty around the, the unemployment rate, some more figures released this week. This is a forecast from the, uh, from the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, um, and unemployment set to rise through 21 especially concentrated in the youth market. So I think that the youth unemployment um, rates are, are around 14% uh, for, the, for the economically active. So particularly exposed to the industries that are hardest hit. So in terms of um, kind of food and, and leisure and, and um, non-essential retail. 
Um, and uh, interestingly, last year, the US Chamber of Commerce was talking about this, this idea of a K-shaped recovery. Um, and, and that certainly resonated with me in terms of the two kind of arms, if you like, of the K. On the one hand, um, industries which have, are recovering, but some that have, have done actually really well during, during the pandemic. So technology, um, online retail, software, and industries that are probably going to continue to need assistance, travel, entertainment, hospitality, food services. Um, and some of the US data, you look at some of the companies, the big US companies like Amazon, um, interestingly Starbucks, even McDonald's, they, those businesses have actually got bigger this year, even as COVID has plunged some of the small arrivals into crisis. And, and another study by McKinsey, their, their global institute, which looks at ranking of, of companies by quartile, and it's got a quartile, it, it's top quartile, superstar, superstar companies, it calls it. Um, and that top quartile has got even stronger in 2020, whereas the bottom quartile has, has got even weaker. Um, so yes, yeah, some have done more than okay. I mean, this chart um, speaks to, to what Amazon's achieved. Um, and uh, I think last quarter, they, they kind of, Enter this exclusive club of, of companies that have managed to reach $100 billion in quarterly revenue. And it's done it in, in just 26 years. So it's become the second tech company after, after Apple to post more than $100 billion in quarterly sales, uh, but done it in, in almost less than half the time it took Apple. And then if you compare it to, to kind of some of the big giants like uh, Walmart or Exxon, I mean, it's done it in almost less than half the time it, it took Exxon. So. Um, so we're seeing again kind of a real kind of split of if you think about that k-shape some people some industries that have done very well some that haven't um but i think many industries and business models can, can agree that they have suffered um some severe disruption in some shape or form but even before covid at, at one point i'd like to make we're already seeing huge disruption in business in, in the uk about three quarters of, of the companies that typically have appeared in the FTSE 100 index or index of leading companies over the last 30 years have, have, have left that index. And in the USA, the Standard & Poor's uh, 500, a similar index, um, the average term for a business appearing in that has shifted from the high 60s, 67 years or thereabouts to less than 20 years in, in a similar period. So I think we're seeing something, a trend around disruptions happening more quickly, more often, and also the speed with which these organizations need to adapt is becoming more critical for their long-term survival. Um, and what we, we've seen in the pandemic is an acceleration of some of those disruptive trends that, that we saw emerging. A lot of those around digital technologies, um, a lot of those around the, the idea of digital transformation. Um, and we've been doing some research that we haven't quite released this yet it'll be coming out next month in, in capita with YouGov and we've been looking at individuals and organizations and industries and asking them a series of questions around the last 12 months in, in this particular case um, I thought it was interesting to show you kind of we asked people to what extent do you think your organization has changed over the last 12 months and on the left hand side here we have almost gone 100% 96% saying that they've experienced you know some level of change about half of that considerable change and then 80 percent four-fifths of those who've experienced some level of change have said it's happened faster than they thought it would so they already thought change would happen but that it's actually happened faster than they they believed it would so I, I really believe that the pace of change that we're going through right now 
it is the slowest pace of change uh, certainly I'll probably experience in the rest of my career and uh, my life and, uh, and uh, it may be well the case that, that those of you listening into this will, will be in the same boat um, and and uh, I think Satya Nadella for the CEO of, of Microsoft um, kind of put it well when he talked about two years of digital transformation in two months um, similar noises have come out of the likes of Tesco who's seen kind of years of transformation in weeks at the start of the, the pandemic um, so, so the general sentiment as a backdrop, I think it's fair to say, is that change has sped up, certainly during the crisis period. Um, so what has all this got to do uh, with innovation? Um, another definition for you, trying to keep it quite simple here, but I think it does a decent job of expressing innovation as, as a new way of doing things based on new ideas and thinking. The, the slight build I would make on this is this, um, distinction, uh, I think of it more of as a, as a spectrum, to be honest, between between two ends. On one end, a more radical innovation, more fundamental change, which, which might be based in a, a new technology or a new invention, uh, electricity. This is a, this picture on the left is, is a microprocessor, one of Intel's first microprocessors um, uh, released in the, in the, the early 70s. Um, some kind of fundamental change in the status quo that, 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 that causes new, uh, new thinking that results in, a, in a more of a paradigm change versus on the other end of the spectrum, something which is more akin to, um, I guess, more an incremental change. So an improvement in existing functionality, maybe by reducing cost or improving efficiency or adding a new feature. And that might be the, you know, for instance, the evolution of a, a smartphone, for instance, here, you've got an example of, of some of the stages an iPhone's gone through, you can see kind of it's got slimmer, it's added more features, um, the, the, the camera has improved. Um, and I think th th that's an important distinction, because I think in a crisis period, um, I think there's more scope for more radical inf innovation than in a stable period, where I think there's more kind of room for for, uh, for incremental change um, and just to bring that to life a little bit uh, just a little a, a summary timeline here looking back over somewhere around the last hundred years some some crisis points through time so in in, in the period of the Great Depression late 20s early 1930s um, you saw some some things emerge Disney kind of really emerged on on the scene as it were Mickey Mouse was first created to provide some uplift during the depression to to uh, to to um, to the American people who who, um, who were going through a pretty bad time um, you saw uh, uh, Radio Corporation America um, with radio becoming really mainstream entertainment as going out and spending became out of the question for many um, something if you fast forward to, to the last year, I think Netflix has found itself in a similar situation where we've all been kind of binging on, on, on box sets um, rather than going out. And then companies such as DuPont, um, who, who boldly invested in research and development at a time when many other companies was, were stopping that spend and retrenching, ended up as a result of that R&D creating some amazing innovations. So neoprene synthetic rubber came out of that period. And, the, and neoprene resulted in components ended up in pretty much every car and plane uh, over the subsequent years. The Second World War, many new innovations relating to uh, to military innovation, particularly around radar, uh, the forerunner to radio frequency ID tagging, RFID tagging uh, came out of that period. 
um, as a way of identifying Allied planes. Uh, and penicillin also went mainstream in that period towards the end of the war, saving millions of, of, of soldiers' lives. And then the next period on that chart is, is the Cold War involving the kind of space race period. Um, and again, many innovations from that kind of period of space exploration um, that we, we still benefit from today. So innovations in laptop computing, for instance, satellite technologies, so, so GPS technologies. And then more recently, the, the financial crisis in 07, 08 and, and the period after that saw a whole raft of new business models created. So Airbnb, which were originally created to, to provide cheap accommodation and other sharing economy businesses, the likes of Uber, Dropbox, Slack, uh, Stripe, uh, Stripe, the, the, the payments company, um, and also venture firms. Um, so Google Ventures uh, came out of that period. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz, famous venture capital firm, uh, famous for the, for the coining the phrase software is eating the world, again, emerged in those periods. So, so what is it about a crisis period that seems to spark these kind of more radical innovative ideas and on the whole ideas that are, that are more kind of at that end of the spectrum than, than perhaps the more incremental ideas. Um, and I think that there's six ingredients. Um, I think the first of those is a sense, a real sense of urgency. So the, 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 three, the three people on this uh, slide are uh, three astronauts uh, from the Apollo 13 mission um that was upended by an explosion on board that forced the nasa engineers to to improvise in order to save the crew to bring them bring them home safely and um and what happened there was there was kind of a famous slogan around uh, failure is not an option and the engineering team managed to design a makeshift device in order to scrub the air of of carbon dioxide so that the astronauts could survive the, the trip home using any items only available to the crew on board the lunar module. So that real sense of urgency, that sense of, um, you know, we're operating in order to save lives here, I think really spurred um, a, a different way of thinking about the situation. And I think you can apply that to some of the, some of the things that we've seen during the, the pandemic. Um, the next uh, ingredient I think is focus or, or singular focus of, 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 uh, I've typed it here. The, an urgency that enables organizations to to drop other priorities and focus on a single challenge and reallocating the various resources they have to focus on on that challenge and i think a, a lot of companies have done that and um, capta had to move a lot of people into into remote working and and shift them onto a, a um, new cloud infrastructure um when the crisis hit but we've also seen it in an environment such as the nhs where um, kind of remote medicine or telemedicine became really important. So uh, if I give you some figures around December 2019, uh, NHS Digital reported that about 19%, um, sorry, 15% of around 23 million primary care appointments during that month took place by phone or online. The following month, April 2020, almost 50%, 49% by those methods. And then by May, many GP practices were delivering 90% or more of appointments virtually. And that transformation is echoed as well in the kind of court system, which had to shift massively from, from operating in a very traditional manner to, to using remote technologies. And of course, I mean, we've all experienced it in a, in a work and an education setting as well. So that singular focus on um, um, uh, combined with urgency on getting a job done and refocusing resources 
um, I think is another critical in, uh, ingredient. And then, and then one here around problem ownership um, with that singular focus and reallocation of resources, it, it becomes everybody's job to now look at a problem and come together with a diversity of thought to solve that, that problem. And you see it, um, and this is this is the, the All Blacks, one of the most successful sports teams in, in history. You see it in high performing teams when they talk about taking responsibility and owning a problem or owning um, owning something during a during a game in order to turn it around. And, and collectively, the people who are leaders in in that team stepping up um, um, to, to kind of get the mission done. And you also see it as well as a principle of some of the kind of elite special forces where it's not about just taking account of your own actions. I'm, I'm talking about the military here. It's also being accountable for whether or not the whole mission is successful. The next ingredient, which I think is key is intensity. Um, and because these are moments that really matter and because I think in many ways, the crisis is seen as temporary, an individual an organization can commit to a really high level of intensity over a, over a short period of time. Um, I think we've seen plenty of that during the pandemic. I think the health warning that comes with that is, is to do with how long you can commit that level of intensity before you start to burn out. It's kind of the idea of how long, you know, can you really sprint a marathon? And I think as we get close to the, the second year that a lot of us are, are, are dealing with the, the, the kind of context and the situation that, that, that we've been uh, working in, certainly through most of 2020, I think that that really becomes a, uh, um, a challenge, I think, organisationally and, and individually. Um, and then the next ingredient, experimentation. Um, and perhaps one of the most important, I think, and, and, and I think a great example here is the speed at which the vaccine uh, or the various vaccines were developed. Truly remarkable. If, if I just show you the next slide, which on, on the left-hand side, chart one, is a chart of the, the time it takes for, this is from um, um, Nature, um, uh, the, the, the journal Nature. Um, chart one, um, kind of the length of time it's taken various vaccines to be developed um, from kind of, you know, up at typhoid and meningitis over over a hundred years. And you, and you go down that left-hand side and you look at, you know, we're talking decades in some cases. And then you look at chart two, um, what, what would have been typically a 10 year process a vaccine's been developed in, in, or vaccines have been developed within, you know, eight to ten months. Truly remarkable, from um, gene the genome being released to preclinical studies commencing, clinical trials, and then um, approval for emergency use. Um, and that again, urgency, singular focus. I think that legitimizes to a degree what might, in other scenarios, constitute kind of waste. So it allows for collaboration, it allows for learning. Um, and Kate Bingham, who was running the, the vaccine program recently, uh, was recently interviewed and talked about actual upfront cost of the vaccine uh, was about 900 million to the UK. Uh, 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 and they went into that with an approach that they were willing to write off the upfront money, uh, which was largely for manufacturing, if, if those vaccines failed. Um, which takes me on to... The, the, the final kind of ingredient, um, risk appetite. And I think underpinning all of those previous five elements, I would call out risk appetite as, 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 a, as a really kind of important um, element of innovating in a crisis. 
I think it's different in a crisis. I think the appetite shifts as the urgency to take action shifts. Uh, we someone saw that as we talked about with the vaccine program. Um, they also kind of accepted uh, um, not just the early purchasing, but acceptancy of, of indemnity clauses, so effectively protection from, from being sued by suppliers. Um, and I think there's just a different attitude to failure in terms of learning and trying something else. Um, if there is no plan, plan B, as it were. Um, I think you've got to make an important distinction here on the boundary between being reckless and, and taking a calculated risk. Um, one of the phrases I've heard is kind of park the emotion and, and have a constructive debate about the data. Um, I think that risk appetite is a really interesting piece to look at in terms of, of innovation in the crisis. Um, so if those are some of the critical ingredients, um, I think a, a, a quite simple or, or to me interesting framework in which those operate is also important. Um, and I, I borrow here from, from the late uh, Andy Grove of Intel, um, who, who kind of put forward the idea of the strategic inflection point. Um, and, and he wrote a book um, well over 20 years ago now called um, Only the Paranoid Survive. And I think a lot of the, the thinking from that, that book is, is still very relevant to organizations today. And what he es essentially said was um, strategic inflection points are the, these things that happen when an organization hits a major change. It takes place in its, its competitive environment. Uh, it may be due to new technology. It may be due to new regulation. It may be due to um, customer needs changing or, or customer values. Um, it may be due to, to a big external event happening. And what, what these strategic inflection points do is what should do is cause the organization to look back and, and really think about the paradigm that they were on um, and then how depending on the actions they take at that point and I'm not saying it's kind of a single day it might be drawn out over a number of years but but at that point um, are they really reflecting on what has changed in their environment and um, how you respond to that challenge is really key so so then after that point there are you know, are you adapting to the change? Are you, um, are you, are you managing the change internally, or are you, are, you know, are you taking the the organisation onto new heights and, and potentially getting rid of some of the thinking from the old paradigm and adopting some of the, the thinking of a new paradigm, or actually are you kind of resisting, you know, kind of like tissue rejection? Are you saying, no, we we're, we're going to carry on as we are, um, which which might involve you heading on that downward trajectory in terms of prosperity of your business or your organization um, and, and it, it's quite a simple idea but I think it encapsulates a, um, encapsulates a lot of really important ideas for thinking about kind of crisis and, and these inflection points and Intel went through a number of those famously one was around when it got out of the memory business because it was getting hammered by uh, by Japanese businesses and chose to go into the microprocessor microprocessor business for which it became very very famous uh, but at the time that caused a lot of bit um, a lot of stress a lot of debate around uh, Intel um, leaving what had been kind of um, a cause for its success previously and moving into to something which um, which it perhaps at the time couldn't see where that might be headed um, I, I think a, a couple of examples um, one which is close to my heart. I've done a lot of a lot of work in retail previously, and I think retail is, is interesting in terms of that strategic inflection point. Um, uh, in retailing back in the uh, 
in the in the 90s Barnes and Noble the, the, the bookseller um, found itself all of a sudden having to deal with an internet-based bookseller upstart that uh, in just two years had taken uh, uh, managed to eclipse them in terms of sales and market valuation and that was of course Amazon which at the time was kind of half a billion valuation in the late 90s and it's up somewhere in the trillion uh, over the trillion now but but um, in retail some of those fundamentals had started to shift at that point um, and that may have been two decades ago and the, and the rise of online retail through that but many businesses um, in that in that initial period ignored that threat early on and found themselves playing catch-up and then what we've seen in the pandemic is that acceleration point where huge acceleration in terms of, of, of um, shift to online uh, partly obviously because of the lockdown and an inability for to, to shop in, in physical non-essential retail but but that's effectively um, permanently damaged a lot of businesses who were either unable or did not make that transition fast enough to, to that new paradigm and you can see that kind of dichotomy in in businesses um, um, some of the department stores you know like Debenhams who unfortunately um, um, have uh, are no longer in the position they once were and, and and then the rise of the likes of Boohoo and ASOS who, who've, who've been able to ride this trajectory um, I think you know education uh, Catherine and I were just having a, a short discussion on this before before um, before we went went live I think at the height of the closure educational institutions um, uh, the closure of educational institutions was impacting about 90% of the world's student population, around 1.5 billion learners. And I think the pandemic has forced educational institutions to rethink some of the processes that, that are associated with classroom teaching. Um, um, and I think it presents a real opportunity, uh, an inflection point for education where this kind of blended model um, is a real opportunity and, and where we see kind of that, that ability to to teach remotely and maybe put a student at the center of the process rather than a, than a teacher i think that the kind of the classrooms and lecture rooms of tomorrow uh, will be very interesting places in the professional learning space i think you've seen even more kind of acceleration certainly certainly a trend pre-pandemic um but even more so during the during the crisis um i think when i was looking at some stats from coursera they saw kind of over 21 million uh, users join Coursera since, since last March um, and over 50 million course enrollment. So a massive increase and again, a, a, a um, significant disruption to that professional learning market. And then uh, kind of just another example here around living and, and working environments. Um, uh, I think there's an opportunity here as well to reimagine cities and towns. You know, we're now living in towns and cities that that probably look like we never imagined, or certainly if you went to central London. Um, and we're steadily moving towards, I think in some cases, you know, um, certainly if I think about my community uh, where I live, um, a lot more of a community feel. I think there's there's a scope here to, to reimagine those kind of living and working conditions. And the picture at the back of this slide is a project called uh, Tipner West, just off Portsmouth. Uh, and it's a former area of wasteland it's under development at the moment to try and create a, a, a new kind of way of, of living um, it's connected to the mainland um, but but you're not allowed cars there there is a kind of underground way of delivering and, and moving moving um, product and services around um, but it's essentially a car-free community and housing develop, 
development, which offers a new kind of way of living. Uh, and I think that there'll be some really interesting kind of innovations in terms of living and the, the environment we work in coming out of uh, out of this pandemic. Um, so I think one of the things I take away is, you know, I think COVID after COVID things, things won't be the same, but I think maybe that they can be better. And I think one of the things to think about there is um, what might these paradigm shifts be? So we've had successive waves of, of, of innovation and, and um, Jacques Kondratiev talked about long-term economic cycles, which were which kind of born out of technological innovation, which resulted in kind of new areas of prosperity. I think we may be seeing another paradigm shift at the moment. Um, and and that, that is very exciting. I think if we talk about future potential crisis scenarios, I think you've got to think about climate change and, and Bill Gates has, has recently released a, a, a book on this subject as, as that's the next global crisis. Uh, and especially when some of the big institutional businesses like, like BlackRock in its latest uh, annual letter to CEOs has talked about you know, the, the net zero economy uh, and the importance of that and getting out of businesses, uh, investing in businesses which are not signed up to um, to that objective. Um, really interesting. I think the other kind of crisis um, uh, is around this kind of trend, if you like, around longevity. Um, so in developed societies, getting older, according to the United Nations, Europe's already the oldest continent in the world. Um, and uh, big implications for how we evolve as economies and societies, um, especially in, in a world where we're having fewer children. So um, I think there's transformative implications for, for things like pensions and savings and thinking how we reskill our workforce, um, thinking about how you cycle back through education potentially and, and reskill and relearn um, uh, if we're potentially not gonna retire or, or gonna be working for far longer than we expected. Uh, and then on the flip side, developing economies almost skewing the opposite direction in terms of demographics. So 60% of Africa's 1.25 uh, billion people are now under the age of 25, for instance, a massive wave of energetic entrepreneurs coming out of Africa with fresh and, and, and unconstrained thinking. So another fascinating area to explore as we look to some of the challenges in the future. Um, and I'd just like to end on, on one of my favorite kind of innovative stories, I guess, um, I don't know whether you classify, this is probably more incrementalism, but but I don't know if many of you are familiar with a, with, with, with a band called the Flaming Lips, which uh, recently staged quite a unique gig in, in Oklahoma, um, where the, the audience, that audience of 100 were invited to uh, sit in inflatable balls or bubbles, uh, kind of absorbing bubbles, uh, holding up to three people each with the band inside their own capsules. And each bubble was a high frequency supplemental speaker. They had uh, a water bottle, they had a battery operated fan, a towel, and a sign they could hold up say, you know, I've got to go to the, the toilet. Uh, and if the if the bubble got too hot, it was refilled with cold air from a leaf blower. So so um so I think you know um innovation can come in many shapes and forms and i think that that kind of experience is, is one of my uh, one of my favorites to date thank you for listening to the big picture podcast series you can find our podcast on spotify apple and google podcasts subscribe to never miss an episode